Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. So Jamie Gengal in, in, in the Today Show call my mom up and say, um, "How you know your your son's a cutter and he's in therapy here, and this latest doctor is treating him for child abuse." Although, why? And um, she said my mom's became very 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 threatening, and so I called my mom up. This is before Doctor Cotby. It's a while. It's like my fifth or sixth year on SNL. So 2000-ish. This is before I knew everything was wrong. I called her up one day, and I said, why did they want to treat me for child abuse, Mom? And I remember, this to me is the greatest tell of them all. She's, there was like a pause, and then without her accent, she went, look, you don't call us, and we won't call you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today, we have part two of probably one of the most powerful podcast interviews that I've ever done in over seven years and 300 so episodes of this show with the longest running cast member of Saturday Night Live, Daryl Hammond. And this part two is a really, really confronting, really, really powerful. And there's a lot of content here that's almost beyond the comprehension of not only myself, but most people in the world listening. But I know there are a lot of people listening that can truly identify with the things that Daryl went through in his life and is going through now. And I think by listening to this episode, we will all be better off and have a greater understanding of the human condition, even if some parts of the human condition don't even feel like they're human. Before I get started, I want to remind you that the film Cracked Up, the documentary film about Daryl and what he's been going through in his life, it's an amazing film. It will be at the Lemley Monica Theater 
on the 20th and 21st this weekend in LA. If you're here in LA, be followed by a question and answer session with Daryl and the producer and some special guests. You don't want to miss it. You can get tickets at the Lemley Monica Theater website. Again, the film is called Cracked Up. And if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram or wherever you find social media. Just press follow and send me a message and I will get back to you as soon as I can. You can also reach me at barrycats.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast, supporting us, passing it along, subscribing, sending messages. It's truly humbling and I'm very grateful for all of you for making the show what it is today. I'm very grateful that you listen. Thank you so much. And as I look at Daryl Hammond and I sit across from him, I think to myself of somebody who has gone through the lowest points that anyone I know of in this entertainment business has gone through as a child. And when you listen to this episode, and I'm not going to share all the examples and the details that are contained in this episode, but when you listen, you will know what kind of things Daryl went through and how he fought through them, how he figured out a defense mechanism in his life to move forward and to be creatively fulfilled until he was able to get in a position to be in front of the greatest stage that any comedian could find themselves in, the live stage of Saturday Night Live, and to be able to test not once, not twice, but to go in and to put all the past behind him when it came to securing and convincing probably one of the greatest producers in television history, Lorne Michaels, that he was ready and he was in a position to be able to compete deliver and score on that show and get the job and then the first episode of the year in the cold open be the star of that sketch portraying Ted Koppel. That to me is unbelievable. But not only that, after securing that, not just stopping there, but continuing your journey to understand the past to accept the past, to digest the past, to move forward from the past, and then to create a groundbreaking documentary that shows in detail what you've gone through in your life and how you figured it out and how you continually evolve so you can get past it and inspire others who are dealing with these kind of problems. I can tell you something right now. If you can figure out a way to do what Daryl has done, in dealing with these issues and how he handled them and faced them eventually head on and got to the greatest stage in the world and then figured out how to be even better every single time to become the longest running cast member in SNL history. I can guarantee you, if you can figure out how to use that blueprint in your journey, you will have the possibility of the kind of extraordinary career that Daryl Hammond has. 
Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. If you don't mind, Daryl, I would again presume that the audience doesn't understand the origin for a person of cutting the first time they do it, what they're trying to accomplish, and then in multiple times, what kind of calm in their life they're getting from creating that kind of damage to themselves. So, would you mind explaining to the audience the first time it happened and what was the motivation? And yeah, it was this what? one right here. I was 19. Can you see the stitches? Uh-huh. I was 19, and I was feeling so much terror, and I was experiencing what was later described as, oh God, I hate the phrase, but it's flashback, where... I was at my friend Larry's house. We were having a party. The kids were dancing. I, I remember Summer Breeze by Seals and Crofts was playing. Of course. And I remember feeling red. I just remember feeling red. The whole now, when you say you were feeling red, is that another thing about that disorder where you have colors associated to something? Or is that a different thing? This was, this was my brain trying to tell me what was wrong with me. And it took almost 30 years for my for this doctor to figure out what that red was. Okay. Okay. But the cutting was for me, it's, it's a number of things, but for me, it was creating a more manageable crisis than the one that was going on in my head because now I'm bleeding. I've got to, I've got to attend to something other than what's going on up here, which was, you know, that sort of, have you ever been so scared you can't talk kind of thing? Um, when I cut, I bandaged it up. Some people came in. There was activity, and it was over. So you go into your room or wherever it is. What do you use to make that mark? The first time, um, I used a, a serrated steak knife. And so normally I thought you're doing it alone, and you're putting the bandage on alone and what I thought cutting was was you're sharing the experience with yourself alone you're saying the group of people knew that happened and when I disappeared for too long of a time and, ho and ho I was ho clogging up hogging the bathroom I mean I it wasn't a science to me at that time I was trying to figure out how to you know when you have stitches you're going to bleed for a while so I was trying to figure out how do I hide this from people and how do I get it to stop bleeding? And then my friends Frank and Larry who knew me so well are knocking on the door going, dude, what the fuck? And they, you know, they're being guys. They're like, what are you digging fucking shit in there or some shit? And open the door. Here's this blood everywhere. And um, that was the first time they called my sister. My sister took me to the hospital and I got stitched up. Because I had thought that the calm and the management of another situation was best served with the person without witnesses 
And it so is. in that particular case, you had the witnesses, so it went astray, that particular one. Yeah, it went astray like two or three times over 30 years, but sure it did. I mean, who, who knows how to stop bleeding? I mean, when it's really bleeding. Not like I fell down or stubbed my toe. It's really bleeding. Who knows how to do that? You know, I'd, and, and plus, I learned you know, over the years, don't cut that deep. Don't cut that deep, you know? When you're watching the cut and you're watching the blood, mm-hmm. is it pleasurable? Is it a high? No. It wasn't for me. It was just relief. Relief. It was analgesia. It was like, oh, my God, some, this is pulling me out of my head and what's going on up here, which is unexplainable fear, you know, the same just on the same fear that I had when I went to the mental health department at University of Florida didn't know what was wrong I mean here I am you got this war hero dad mom looks like a net bending we go to church we don't have any bruises on us I mean we we were the picture of an all-american family but our house had bad secrets terrible secrets and um, it wasn't until much later in life that I uh, until I met this doctor, and I guess I was in my fifth, early 50s, until I met him, which I really, did I really understand what was going on with me? You know, the, that big final cut, they send me up to the Haven in upstate New York. The doctor's name is, is Dr. Cotby. And I arrive on his doorstep, a crumpled mess. I mean, literally. And uh, a bloody mess. And I guess, you know, I was in, you know, their intake program for a day or two and then weaned off medication so that he could come in and talk to me. And um, he comes in and he's like, he's looking at this sheet, diagnoses. He's going, uh, I'm not going to do the accent for you, but maybe a little just to tell the story. But he he looks and he goes, let me see, you are schizophrenic, you're multiple personality, you're psychotic, you're bipolar, you're unipolar. And then he tried a little joke, he goes, you're all of the polars? <laughs> and he just tried this little joke and he goes, let's face it. Claps, you are a nut. <laughs> and he made me laugh. <laughs> Let's face it, you are a nut. And I was like, yeah, I guess I kind of am. And he goes, but you're not. You're really not. He goes, you're this way because of something that happened to you. And that was my hallelujah chorus moment that I've been waiting for my whole life. Because you have all these doctors all these years going, I don't know what's wrong with you, dude. I don't know. And here's this guy who sees it. He knows exactly. He knows exactly. And that's where the phrase mental illness is not an airborne virus came from. And in my world, it's like mental illness is not an air. He goes, I don't even call it mental illness. I call it mental injury because it tells me there's a story. Something happened and now you're this way. And we're going to find out what that is. But that was how all your chorus time I was like because I remember there was a time in my life where I thought if someone came to me and shot and said 
I'm going to tell you what's wrong, but I'm, then I'm going to have to shoot you. I go, let's go. Throw down. Shoot me right now. But what the fuck is going on here? You know, all these doctors. And why am I cutting? What the fuck is that? Why did... Why do I keep having these things where I wake up and I'm feeling red and there's I have these things in my mind about redness? Like when you think of a flashback, it's not really a hallucination. You're not really seeing it. You know, it's not in the room with you, but it is. You know, those flashbacks are what they call fugue states. It's two things at the same time. So I'm sensing something from my past which terrifies me and I'm at SNL. I'm in the, in the same moment, you know, and the way the brain, my brain, and I guess people's brains do is they give you tiny pieces of information over time. They don't give it to you all at once, you know, but it's interesting that, that it knows to hold those things in the limbic system. And then it makes some sort of, the brain makes some sort of independent decision. All right, now we're going to start trying to let this out. <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? Am, am I being confusing? No, you're not being confusing, but I think most people listening would say, okay, there's trauma, there's fear, mm. there's kind of not the greatest growing up situation. Professionally, I'm on the road with Billy Gardell. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm working Ha Ha's Chuckle Hut for $125. Mm -hmm. What's my purpose in life? Smash cut to... You just finished the premiere episode of Saturday Night Live on the cold open, the most valuable real estate on television, and you win. So now you have evidence in front of you. I can win. Uh -huh. If given the opportunity, I'm a fucking winner. Uh -huh. I'm not a fucking loser. Mm. I don't need these other solutions. I fucking did it. And if they fire me tomorrow, I did it. Mm -hmm. But that seemed to mean nothing. It seemed to add more trauma, which is so interesting to anybody listening would think, God, this is on the bucket list. I've done it. The, th the thing that I want to quote is Martin Luther King's phrase, truth crushed to earth will rise again. It just will. And that's the way the limbic system in the brain works. Like, no, wait, we haven't experienced what happened in the kitchen that day. We haven't experienced that at all. Because when my daughter was born and I saw her for the first time, how perfect she was, it, it hit me. What would you have to do to this child to turn her into me? Right? And that's when I realized so, the, the images started to sort of flood back from me. And if I'm being, uh, make, make me be clear here because I'm trying to be clear. If you think of certain memories as like icons on a computer screen that you kind of just didn't open, you're kind of, you know, you're aware of them. But you really haven't examined the contents. When I saw her perfection, I knew proof positive that I was not born like this. I was not born. And that... I began to remember my hand being slammed on a door. When I remember being hit with a hammer. I remembered... Um, 
being locked in a car in the Florida sunshine. I remembered being left in Jacksonville um, by myself at the age of three. I started remembering those things. But in my mind, and this is why I wanted to make the movie and I wanted to write the book, is because I lived a whole lifetime thinking the damn thing was my fault. Because I thought I, I slammed my hands in those doors. I, I hit myself with that hammer. I locked myself in that car. I went through life thinking that. And the weirdest part is, Barry, is the perp ain't going to tell you. Okay? And the weirdest thing about the relationship between a perp and a victim is, is the expectation that you're not telling nobody. Do you get that? Do you know what you, you get? A, you won't tell anyone because of how much worse I can make that on you. And so you grow up, think, and, and that to me was the worst part of the whole experience. You're expected not to tell. You're not going to tell anyone. Well, years later, I, I see the perfect child. The memories start to come back. When you say you see the perfect child, who's the perfect child? My daughter, Mia. How old's your daughter now? She's, getting, she's almost 20. There was a brutal, kind of a messy divorce. We haven't spoken for a while, so it's a sentimental subject to me. But seeing her, realizing I was not born like this, and I'm thinking about this at the moment, and there was something, you know, the women were in there fussing over, my wife's friends fussing over her and all, you know, and there was some point where my wife said something like, oh, and your mom called and she would love to take the baby for a few days. I wasn't sure it was her, but in that moment I said, I'll kill her. And where the fuck did that come from? Wait, you're going, wait, what? What do you mean? Wait, what? What did I, what? Like, I suddenly thought I had to protect her life. I didn't really understand that until I got to this doctor who, you know, the great, the trick of a great trauma doctor is to get up in your head and pick out the most horrible thing that ever happened to you so bad you've never really addressed it. To pull it out of there and not hurt you and not injure you. And that's what this doctor did. But he was the first guy to say, you, this, this is an injury. It's not an illness. You could call it an illness resulting from an injury, but it's an injury. It came from somewhere very specific, and it has a story. And the point of origin in that story, you weren't alone. Who else is in the room? That's where we're going. So if you don't mind, I want to go way, way back. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to what kind of financial dynamic was the family Look, and then i want to know what your earliest memory was that something's not right i never had i never thought that there was something not right until i was holding my daughter in the hospital room that day i remember being hit in the stomach with a hammer I remember going to... Um, in the hospital. Holding her. Oh, okay. The first thing I remember was hitting the stomach with a hammer. But how old were you when you got hit in the stomach with a hammer? Four, between four and five. And that was your mom or your dad? Mom. It's the first memory. Yeah. I, I want to I wanna 
sidebar here. Please. shoehorn this in later. This is what I learned in that hospital. Mental illness is not an airborne virus. Monsters, real monsters, human monsters, hide in the light. Right? Monsters don't make themselves. Monsters were victims before they were monsters. That's essentially how I'm... This guy imparting all that knowledge to me. So, in other words, when you look at what your mom did with the hammer, if she was sitting across from us right now and you said you hit your son with a hammer in the stomach when he was four, did you think that was the right thing to do for him or was that the wrong thing to do for him? What would she say? She would say what she said at the time when she, when she told the doctor in the hospital, which was sort of a version of, he, I think he fell on his bike. He's like, well, how could he... F- why is he bleeding inside? I think he's got those weird handlebars, those high handlebars. I think he just fell and he came inside and he, he'd hurt himself like that. Um, and when she said that, what were you feeling sitting there? I believed her because I had already decided that I was doing this, you know, that I was a bad person because it's better to think you're a bad person than, the, than your mom doesn't love you. Now, sometimes the father doesn't know what's going on. Was that the case? He didn't know until he came home one day and stumbled upon the scene that this doctor drug out of me while he had me there. Like, I remembered certain things, and they were bad enough. But I didn't remember being just poked in the tongue with a serrated stain. It's <coughs> just like that. I didn't remember being asked to, to stand, stick out my tongue and not make a sound. Here's the worst part, to act like it's not happening. I didn't remember that part. Um, but he figured it out using synesthesia. So your dad's reaction... My, he put her in a hospital, in that house. So your dad had your back like Lauren had your back. But my father was thinking about Adolf Hitler um, and Nazis. You know, he was decorated World War II hero. My father never stopped wanting to kill them. He never stopped talking about them. He never stopped bringing his German Luger out to look at it. He never stopped looking at pictures of them. You know, he wanted to, some. He wanted to still be fighting them. I don't know how to put it. Like he went a little, not a little. He went a lot nuts. I mean, he used to call them. Uh, he said, "You you got to look in their eyes," because he used to call it verifiable evil. He would say, "These aren't conscript soldiers from Korea or Guam." This is something different. And it was haunted. He was haunted by it. So he's in his own revelry. Flash to his deathbed last words. I'm sorry I let my anger be more important to me than you. What? He was so mad at them. He couldn't stop hating them. So he really wasn't paying attention. 
And remember, just because monsters hide in the light doesn't mean they do their handiwork in the light. They do it when people aren't around, which is between the hours of 3 and 5. Or, you know, usually it was with me. Um, My father would be away at the store or or whatever. And there weren't any marks on me, you know. It wasn't until the floor was so red, you know, he just... You you couldn't not know. I remember spending the night at my grandparents and eating cream corn and you know, not be able to keep it down because I couldn't chew, you know. Because of your, the cut on your tongue. Yeah, and it was like, it's a little, a little, you can see it's a little small incision. See, hmm. it was just a, like, serrated steak knife. Like that. It's about a, a quarter inch. But the tongues bleed. And um, so she went away. So he had her put away, but she came back. She came back. So how long before she rose again and exhibited the same behaviors again? She never hit me again. She became, if you ever look at the book, my mother was a really beautiful woman. She became more of a seductress. When she came back, how old were you? Six or seven. When's the first time you ever fought back? I never fought back. Never. I had Pavlov. I had learned helplessness, you know. So she starts again, like what, three, six months later, with other things, maybe mental cruelty or. Um, I can't remember what happened between five and twelve. I just remember around the time of puberty, when she started being naked all the time, <clears throat> and um, just walking around the house naked. Yeah. And then, yeah, but I mean. And yeah. what is your opinion of why she did that? I think that people like her wanted to make very sure, whether she understood it or not, that I would always be her property, that I would never be able to be mate fully with somebody else. I mean, they're securing you. You can't leave. You won't get away from this. There won't be one time in your life where you don't answer to me. You'll answer to me for the rest of your life. At the doctor's office, when you try to mate with a woman, and the things that you won't be able to know how to do, when you start cutting, when you drink too much, every time you go to the hospital, every time you go to the shrink, every time you write out a check to a doctor, you're answering to me. That's, I don't know that she had that process, that thought process. But when you, you know, you go to trauma units and you see trauma patients who really sort of have the mentality of, boy, they did the crime and I'm doing the time, you know. So you mentioned there's a lot of secrets. Yeah. I want to tell you the doctor scene, what I remember of it, where he figured the whole thing out. And then you, you'll, maybe that'll help. So he comes in one day and he goes, he goes, why, what's with the synesthesia? Why? You color code things. He goes, I've, I've never treated a synesthete, but I've heard of them. You color code things. You color code your characters. I went, yeah, I do. This is weird shit, isn't it? It's incredible. Well, that's why there are these great doctors. He comes in and he goes, well, let's play a game. What color is Porky the pig? And I went, yellow. He's like, Bugs the bunny, Bugs Bunny. And I'm like, 
Maybe Aqua? Geraldo Rivera. I'm like, I think black with some streaks of orange. And he starts going through the mall. Daffy Duck, green. Pee Wee Herman, green. Bill Clinton, orange. Ted Koppel, blue. Dick Cheney, blue. He's going through this and he, he's going, green, yellow. George W. Bush is beige. I don't see any red. Why are there no reds? And I'm like, I don't know. Actually, I don't. So that he goes, what color was your house? And I went, it's beige. And I, you know, because the couch, the living room, the walls. I'm like, it seemed like everything was like beige. And he's like, was there any blue? And I'm like, there could have been blue. Um, the grass was kind of green, you know, it was bleached by the sun. It could have been, there was green. And he's like, well, what about red? I'm like, I said, the only thing I can think of that in my whole world was red was a hibiscus bush outside our kitchen window. And he goes, hibiscus bush outside a window in a house near the beach where the ocean blows. And because years later, I, I remember telling doctors, I keep thinking it's something's there's like a like a thumping or some weird shit he's like and and the blows the bush the red in the window blows against the window i got it i think i got it i think i got it you know my mom used to tell me that i was this way because our housekeeper murtis would hide in the closet at night and jump out and scare me and that's why i was this way so he lets a few days go by and he comes back and he goes, um, um, you were close with Murtis, you loved her. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. He's like, where did she sleep? Your mother told you that she would jump out of the closet at night and, and frighten you. And that's why you're this way. Where did she sleep? I said, she didn't sleep anywhere. She went home every day at five o'clock. And then he said, and this is when the whole thing broke up. And for me, he goes, then how could she jump out of the closet to scare you at night? And then I, I knew, we both knew, why would your mother tell you something like that? And why would you believe it? You know, what he told me was, you're here in this hospital not because of drugs and alcohol and cutting and craziness. You're here because you don't know how to tell yourself the truth about certain things. You don't know how. You didn't learn that. And for you to survive where you came from, there couldn't be, you couldn't understand truth. You couldn't really consider it. That I'm left on a park because I'm not loved. I mean, you can't really handle that, can you? You know, like to me, being separated from your mother and knowing she's not coming back, like that's when I became a cutter. That's when the whole thing went bad. I, I think I could absorb the other things is almost a, almost a form or a, a level of corporal punishment. So, in other words, your mom goes away, and again, I'm pointing to the 
premiere episode of SNL mm-hmm. where it all comes together. Mm-hmm. You're protected. And then three million people are saying to you, you're safe and we want you here. Mm-hmm. It gets worse there. Your mom goes away. You're safe. And you feel shittier. Well, I hadn't figured out what happened to me. Like in order for me, I mean, Dr. Phil said you, or no, it was a a behaviorist named John Bradshaw said, if you can name it, you can tame it. I hadn't named it yet. Like apparently the limbic system where these memories are stored, or the hippocampus where the memories are stored is unyielding. One of these days, this truth that is so neatly crushed to earth so you could survive is coming back, you know? Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a -a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, Instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hey, everybody. And I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount, a $100 discount, and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the air doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like but the air inside my house it feels heavy at times before i got this product and now it got rid of all the bad air in my house the dust the pet hair the pollen it just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home and for me when i got this product it was amazing the difference that i found in the air in my house and it's normally six hundred dollars and you can check amazon right now and you'll see but for all of you listening today, I can offer you $300 off. 
$300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry, and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. So your mom comes back, you're 12 or 13, you're going through puberty. And she starts showing up in the house naked, and uh, sometimes I would wake up and she would be in the bed, you know. Did she make advances towards you? I don't recall that. I remember the nudity, and I remember occasionally waking up in the bed, but I don't actually... I don't remember her putting her mouth or hands on me. Did your dad know that she was sleeping in your bed naked? No, he was traveling. He was a traveling salesman. He did not know that. So the next point where I would think that you would feel your safest was the day that you graduate high school and you could be on your own and leave the house. So I imagine the first thing on your mind is like, okay, I got to figure out something to earn money and get my own place so I can get the fuck out of here. Yeah, but it's almost like if you have, to, I'm sorry to use a crude analogy, but if you have to go to the bathroom, you really don't go to the bathroom until you get home and you realize, how did I hold it this long? Once the body and mind understand, she can't, you're safe. It's okay to get sick now. Now's the time to get sick and find out what this is, you know? So you get out of the house for the first time. University of Florida. Walk out by the pool. A guy says, there's something wrong with you, isn't there? Is there something wrong with you? Can I help you? Do you, you, need, a do you need a doctor? Tell me the longest time in your life that you've gone without feeling fear, anxiety, or unhappiness. Since I found out what happened in the, in the kitchen that day, I've had uh, God, almost eight or nine years. I mean, I feel fear. I fear all kinds of things, but not like that. I remember telling someone, uh, one of my friends, I was like, what do you do all day when you're not going to get killed? Like, what stuff do you do? Like, what do you do? <laughs> do you watch ESPN? Like, what do you do, you know? Once we found out, we did sort of a good chair, a good good angel, bad angel thing, which is a popular form of therapy where you try to get truth out of people. And I would play Would my, you mind explaining good angel, bad angel? Sure. Usually it involves two people. And that person argues like, for your selfish behavior, and you apologize for it's. It's not much more complicated than that, but in this case, it was just me. So he put me in a chair, and um, he was said, "I'm going to tell you what to say. You're going to be your mom, and then you're going to be you, and I'm going to tell you what to say." And he just went through it like that until he had me at one point as my mom. And he goes, you're going to sit here and you're going to say, we are here together, mom. So I went, we're here together, mom, or whatever it was, he said. And I will sit here until the end of time. And I'm like, uh, but he's doing this like, and I will sit here until the end of time. And I'm like, okay, I'll sit here at the end of time. 
until you tell me about the hibiscus bush. And I went, until you tell me about the hibiscus bush. He goes, okay, now you're your mom. Sit in the chair over there. And he sits down in the chair and he goes, as your mother, you say, what hibiscus bush? Are you at, are you fucking crazy? Are you crazy? Just one of your personalities? But he, he goes, no, really say it. Say it. And I'm like, is this one of your, no. He goes, no, say it. Is this one of your personalities? And when I did that, and he, then he's like dragging me, he's putting me in the other chair, and he's like, and then I can, and the dialogue was, came out of me. How fucking dare you talk to me like that? You know, it was like a, like a torrent. So once we figured out what that was, that it was her, in this whodunit of a life, or so someone called it a whodunit, you know, there was a play at La Jolla Playhouse, and that's what Chris Ashley, the Tony Award-winning director, said. He goes, it's a whodunit, essentially. So once you figured that out, you know, I was thinking about, she's dead. All I wanted to do is kill her. I, you know, I, I, you knew this all this fucking time? You knew this this whole time? I didn't have to go through any of this. I did not have to have this life. You could have just given me the information and you didn't tell me. Like that kind of rage. Like, So then we go to phase two of the, of the recovery, which is um, monsters don't make themselves. In order to be a monster, you have to be a victim first. They have to be a victim first. That was the therapy. So he began to coach me. I want you to think of your mother as a little girl at some point, as a child. And really had me visualize it, you know, with the, with the auburn hair and, you know, and in Georgia. And uh, I had met her, her parents, so he put the parents in the room. I mean, we really did sort of somatic experience, you know, like, let's picture your mother as a little girl. And, um, you know, probably every one of these hospitals has a ghost story that the patients like to tell. And there was a story about a ghost um, at the Haven out on the grounds at night. And I used to go out at night looking, to be honest. If I could, you know, there would be, a, you could have a little, a couple of minutes after dinner. And I was always looking out my window, you know. Patients would say they saw it, the ghost. And I'm like, I wanted to see it. Blah, blah, blah. All this is happening at the same time. The story about monsters are victims first. My mother is a little girl. And then I had this dream. But in the dream, I was a, it was not a, you don't have a dream where it's not a dream. It's real. It's just so real. And I remember thinking about my mother outside my window crying like there was a little girl outside the window remember there was everyone's talking about the ghost outside blah 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 so in the dream it was a little girl standing outside the window who was crying who had my mother's eyes 
And in the dream, this man came up behind her and started beating her up. And she was making that sound that children make when they're being beaten or crying. That ca almost a cackle. Like a cackling cry. Like that awful sound. And um, in that minute, I felt sympathy. I mean, I was, I walked, I woke up and I went to run outside. I ran out of the hallway and the nurses were down there. It was the middle of the night. And I was like, fuck. And so the one thing I noticed when I went out of the hallway looking for the nurses was I wasn't scared. So I go to this doctor, I'm like, well, explain that shit to me. Like, I, it, it's almost like a, a sound, a low-level hum had stopped for the first time in my life. And he used to have this theory, you know, we got to talk about forgiveness here. And he goes, and nothing really heals someone like you faster than a little sympathy for the devil. Just a little sympathy. That's sort of the gateway that I've been trying to... That's what we're doing here. And now what's forgiveness? What is, you're going to have to... You've got to forgive this person. And I'm like, what is that? I mean, I love her again. And she, she didn't do anything wrong. Everything is fine. It's like, no. The forgiveness is not for her. The forgiveness is for you. The forgiveness is for you to drop her. And move on with your life. Not hate her anymore. <clears throat> like as long as you hate her, she owns you. Now you're not going to hate her anymore. And you move on. You know, with your life. I mean, he was the first time to, to diagnose complex PTSD. How do you live with that? Well, there's, there's people that can help you live with that. My most important experience through it all occurred when I was leaving, you know? Because, you know, when I, I remember when I first went in there, I, I got a little arrogant with him. He's like saying, when he told me that you're here because you don't know how to tell yourself the truth about things, I got a little arrogant with him, and I was like, buddy, I'm, a, I'm the longest running cast member in Saturday Night Live History, motherfucker. I just wrote a New York... Oh, I hadn't written the book yet, that's right. I'm like... I've met four presidents. Famous people know me. and sh I know what I'm doing. I remember saying to him, and he said, um, like, where, where are your keys? Your, your keys to your house? Like that. I'm like, my keys? I mean, I thought to myself, because uh, I didn't have a wallet. I mean, I had my wallet, but I didn't have my phone. And I... And I guess I'd had my keys with me, but I went, uh, someone took them from me. And he goes, someone took your keys. Someone from the, and I go, he goes, who took your keys? I said, I believe the medical board of the state of New York. And he goes, okay. So while you're dazzling us up on the high wire, the state of New York comes and takes your keys. 
you can't go home. How well do you think you're doing? Do you think I'm right or do you think, you know, are you right? Or somewhere in between? The state of New York took your keys, dude. So I remember the, the, whole, the, the whole ceremony to it when I was leaving the hospital. After we'd done all these things. And he comes in and he's talking about the sympathy for the devil, that kind of thing. And um, I, I don't remember the dialogue. You know, I'm trying to... I don't remember what we said. I remember what we said, but not st I can't stylize it. He's like, um, I have something for you, your keys. I have one more thing for you, your keys. And time for something like that. It was very moving. It's time. Uh, there was one more thing. I, I was like, you've given me so much, doctor, or something like that. He's like, well, there's one more thing I have for you. And I'm like, what? He goes, your keys. And I, I remember someone was coming to pick me up. And I went to the door. And I remember saying to him, I can't recover unless you answer this question. Okay? I was like, how do you know? That I didn't just make this whole fucking thing up. I mean, I need you to convince me. I I need to you to convince me that you didn't just take my money and say some bullshit to me. How do you know? And I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna paraphrase by not my much. It was the most. Second, most important thing in my moment in my life. And he goes, "Well, you it, you have all these cuts, uh, roughly forty nine. I counted, and I stopped counting at forty nine. Forty eight on your body, I counted, and then I found the one in your mouth." He goes, "When someone takes a razor blade and opens up their slices into their flesh, by definition, they're risking their own life." He goes, it's my personal belief that no living organism can risk its own life unless it's to save it. He goes, that's point one about the cutting, that you were trying to save your life. He goes, the second thing is that even children from crappy homes, bad homes, don't make up stories that would put their parents in prison. You know, children from Dickensian circumstances, from Charles Dickens novels that take beatings, don't, uh, that don't make up stories, they would put their parents in prison. But people from homes with criminal child abuse can't wait to tell the story. Because, you know, you've been in, I've been in perp, the, perp, the perpetrator contract 101. I haven't been allowed to tell. She's dead. Here, I want to tell. Now I want to tell everyone, you know. Did your mom at any point in her life, when she was sitting down across from you, did you ever say, Mom, why did you do this to me? Yeah, this is the tell. 
you know, even the Today Show, Jamie Gangel on the Today Show did a six-minute documentary on the Today Show with Lauren and Koppel in it about systematic and brutal child abuse. And she called up my mom. And at the time, I didn't quite know it was what it was, but I knew that they wanted to... I, I, oh, I had told Jamie, they want to treat me for child abuse. So Jamie Gangel in, in, in the Today Show called my mom up and say, um, how, you know, your, your son's a cutter and he's in therapy here and this latest doctor, there was one doctor before Dr. K who suggested that th this was not chemical. It's treating him for child abuse, although, why? And um, she said my mom's became very, very, very threatening and... Barry, it's really weird to, to look at and go, wow, this is poisonous, but I, I can't see it, you know? I can't see it. To have spent a whole life thinking the whole thing was my fault, you know? So I called my mom up, and I said to her... How long ago was this? I don't know, whenever Jamie Gengel did that. So it could be 10... This is before Dr. Cotby. It, it's a while. It was like my fifth or sixth year on SNL. So 2000-ish. This is before I knew everything was wrong. I called her up one day and I said, why did they want to treat me for child abuse, Mom? And I remember, this to me is the greatest tell of them all. She's, there was like a pause. And then without her accent, she went, Look, you don't call us, and we won't call you. Consider it, Barry. Someone comes to you that you love and said, Barry, I heard you did all of these things. People are telling me you did all of those things. Someone that you love and can't live without. You're going to say, okay, well, I'm going to stop whatever the thing I'm doing until we figure this out. I, I, I gotta, you right? I'll stop my life right now until we figure out this. I'll do anything to, to, to convince you to help you with this, to help the situation. I'll do anything. Not, we won't speak again. You know, we never spoke again until, um, her deathbed when she said um, you were always my good buddy my friend Eddie the security guy Eddie Galanick you know from NBC of course. he was standing right there beside me because I had taken him down to Florida because I was pretty scared of her she was dying and he said um, and she he was <laughs> Eddie goes you know when I figured I, I met your mother I swear to God I, I almost pulled my piece <laughs> He's like, you know, I, I, I almost threw it at him. <clears throat> she goes, you were always my good buddy. And we walked out in the hall, and that's when Eddie went, I almost pulled my fucking gun on her. That's the most chilling shit I have ever heard. You know. So that's the last thing she ever said to you. That was her last words to me. But on her deathbed, moments before she passed, everyone's allowed to. Or she had no. She had already died, and everyone's allowed to come in and say your piece. 
you know, my piece was like, how come I, ne I never had a mom, you know? How come you hated me? I said, how come no one here knows you or really ever met you? And why didn't I get to have a mom? Now, juxtapose that with the words of a soldier on his deathbed, and Eddie was in the room at the same time. And he goes, this is my father's deathbed. Barack Obama was going to host SNL. My father, we get a call that Saturday from the hospital saying, you need to come miss the show. Your father's going to pass soon. So Lawrence, like, go, 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 go. You know, we'll figure something out. And my father says, crazy shit right he's like I, I, I'd rather see him on TV I mean if I'm dying the next day Eddie and I fly down there so you don't do SNL no I did this the one where there's the costume ball where I'm Bill Clinton and Hill and Barack Obama's hosting the show right yeah. it's that one and then we fly early the next morning. We get to Orlando. We drive to Port Malabar, just outside of Melbourne, Florida. My father's on his deathbed, and he's got his war medals on his chest. And he tells me what each one is for. And then he says this thing. He goes, I'm, I, I let my anger be more important to me than my children. And now that's my sin. And I'm sorry for that. And I'm like, I, I tell you the truth, it was almost like I felt like I had a dad my whole life. You know, it was like so fucking beautiful. I let my anger be important, more important to me than my children, and I'm sorry. Then he does this. He goes, you can ask Eddie if you see him again. He goes, Eddie, son, I'll see you somewhere on down the road. And then he goes to the nurse, he goes, now give me my fucking morphine. <laughs> Trippy, right? Eddie was there. Eddie loved my dad. I remember saying to Eddie one time, I'm like, yo, Eddie, thank you for all the stuff you did for me and my dad, you know, because he would come to me with me on these trips. <laughs> And he's like, no, I'm the one who should be thanking you I, that I got to love your father and make your father. And I felt like almost like I had my own, like my own dad. I reached an understanding, a higher understanding of God. And then he pauses like, plus I got to fuck the nurse, which is, I go, shit. <laughs> I don't know if he did or not. But. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, 
and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Six degrees of separation. All right, six degrees of separation. Mm -hmm. I'm going to mention some names. Mm -hmm. Tell me what comes to mind. Okay. Tina Fey. Greatest writer. One of the greatest writers I've ever seen. And she's, uh, uh, let me say this, healthy genius. Like she doesn't have all the other baggage and bad habits. I'd say healthy genius. Whoopi Goldberg. The first person of any real stature that looked me in the, in the eye and understood me and called me a shapeshifter. Dave Chappelle. Chappelle was, when I was watching him on stage once, I remember saying to myself, when he was, you know, in the village, it's the first time I realized I can figure out how these other comics are kind of writing their jokes, mechanics of that. I can't figure out how he's writing his jokes. I can't figure out what this, you know, and then it reminded me of certain things that I saw Groucho do on tape. Some of those Groucho jokes, you can't, some of those prior jokes, you can't write. I'm not going to be able to write those. There are passages in Grapes of Wrath, and I'm a good writer. I, there are passages in Grapes of Wrath where I'll sit back and go, I don't know how you did that. <laughs> well, Chappelle was like that too for me. Jerry Seinfeld. 11 laughs a minute at University of Central Florida. <laughs> me and Billy Gardell timed him. 11 laughs a minute and one applause break. Laughs per minute. I always talk about that. Do you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, because you, you, humans don't have more oxygen. <laughs> he, he was nailing them 10 times, and then they would erupt on the 11th laugh, and there would be an applause break, and we were, we were just kids or just people just starting out. Billy Gardell. Magical guy and still my best, one of my best friends. Um, a guy who can do anything. And a guy who, I don't know, I haven't loved that many people in my life. Will Ferrell. Healthy genius and very kind to me during my distress. Bill Clinton. Um, there's two people I've never met anyone else like. One is Trump and one is Clinton. Clinton's magic, and I don't care if you call it black magic or not. That guy's magical, and Trump pulls off some really Herculean feats from time to time, and has. But Clinton, magic, just... Oh, my name for him was Bedside Vigil, because Clinton, you know, not like sex, like, he could make you feel just perfect, like... He never, like his life would not be the same if he hadn't met you. You know what I mean? Like, wow, it's so great that I met you. That, that feeling, you met him, right? I've never met him. Yeah. Like you're one of the most important things that ever happened to you. 
Dan Aykroyd. Aykroyd tried to help me. You know, Aykroyd, with all the other beautiful things going on in this world, if it hadn't been for Dana Carvey and Dan Aykroyd, I wouldn't have made it at SNL. I couldn't do it, dude. I mean, I got my couple out there the first time, but I, I couldn't score after that until Dana Carvey hosted, and then he kind of explained to me what I was, how to do what I wasn't able to do, which was sort of write a sketch. Well, I didn't know how to do that shit. He's like, well, you're not going to write a sketch. What you're going to do is prepare three or four different characters a week that, that come so easily to you, and you're going to trot them around this building on Tuesday night. You know, he just sort of taught me how to be there. Sylvester Stallone. Stallone was the guy that said, was, honestly, I hope he remembers this, remembers me. I spent a lot of time with him that week, you know, the week that he hosted. And he wrote me a really nice note. You know, it was wonderful to bask in your talent, like that thing. I had many great conversations about the Florida Everglades with him. A really cool cat. Chris Rock. I wish I was as good looking, as slick and stylish and could write stand up like him. I mean, I knew to get where I wanted to go, I had to become a good stand up and I was a good stand up. But these are people that I would look at and go, well, I, I know I can't do that. And, and, and sort of awe, sort of. The first time at SNL when people saw in public that you were troubled. So the first time at SNL where you let your guard down and somebody saw you exhibit a behavior that was like, what the fuck is that? I was taken out of there in a straitjacket. It had, I, I thought it had something to do with the time they, they were considering putting me, um, making me up to look like my mother because my mom wasn't available. I, I, I confess I don't know exactly if, if the two were connected. I know I probably cut myself. I remember that I was a little belligerent because the nurse said, um, she didn't seem to believe me when I told her something was wrong with me or something. So I was probably pretty belligerent that day. Belligerent enough for her to call the cops. I said, I need help. I can't go back out there. Something's wrong with me and nobody believes me. You've got to help me. And I guess I was aggressive. And she uh, didn't know what else to do, so she called the cops. Alec Baldwin and Donald Trump and Daryl Hammond. Didn't work out for me. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't work out too good for me. You know, that was... uh, one of those uh, I mean I always had great experiences with Alec that was one of those things that was hard for me because I I guess I didn't expect it I considered myself a pinch hitter and a person that could be change parts with people just that I went the whole summer and moved back from New Orleans thinking that I was playing that part of Trump made me feel so foolish and embarrassed Um, but I mean it doesn't really it's not really good form to complain what happened the other day at gladiator school you know know what I mean that's show business and a creative decision was made to replace me Um, 
in the middle of my home run trot just after being I think it was um, Wall Street Journal called me the comeback kid and Daily B said I was America's Trump I was doing pretty good so I was pretty surprised by it but I mean I changed I had I played I changed parts with Mick Jagger I changed parts with a lot of people I just didn't expect it you know your proudest moment in show business probably uh, correspondence dinner the White House correspondence yeah. dinner one where you surprised Clinton as Clinton I'd say that's the probably the best thing in my personal professional history yeah your biggest disappointment in show business along the way and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level I remember you know I got turned down by every club in New York City and I think even your Boston Comedy Club I don't know if Boston Comedy Club turned me down but when I first got there I got turned down by everyone and I expected to have to audition and re-audition that wasn't the one the one was when the the guy the, the owner of the, the manager of the comic strip set me down Lucian Hold, the late told me Lucian not Holt. to come back and look at the wall pictures of you know Seinfeld I mean um, yeah Seinfeld and Eddie Murphy Eddie Murphy and all and, and Chris Rock I mean and he's like these people have it because I had just killed and he said um, I don't think you have it like that and I had to go back to, fucking Brooklyn in the middle of the night February night cold like going what I just killed at the strip and I don't have it that feeling that I won't ever make it because right hopeless must have been a great feeling going back to the comic strip after you got SNL do you remember the first time you saw Lucian after that yeah he, he looked he walked over to me and goes do I know you have we met I mean did you ever work here? What did you say? I was like, yeah, I have. You know, it's one of those things where you're like, you rehearse in your mind what you're going to say to the person, but then you don't. It's disappointing. And I remember another time when I was at SNL and um, one of the pages came, Daryl, there's a Lucian Hole downstairs that would like to come up. And I'm, I was, I said, I'm just busy, but I really wanted to say something fantastically mean but I I don't know for whatever reason I didn't last question what advice do you have for the young person who's going through a lot of difficult time remembering their childhood and the secrets and the bad things that happen but they know they're talented and they have a skill set and they know they have a place in this world but they just got to get through and navigate and figure out how to get through it all. And then to work hard and to get to the place to have the kind of career that you've had. Well, part of my career is Kismet. Part of my career is Marcy Klein. Part of my career is Barry Katz walking into the smartest man in the whole world and, and, and thinking, hmm, how do I move this guy? Lauren Michaels like how do I get this guy because I know Daryl killed before but how do I get him again like what do I do so you 
And then there was Marcy, I mean, who um, could have just as well thought something different. You know, there there was no reason for someone to pick me at the age of 39 unless I walked in there and hit a tape measure blast. I mean, hit it out of Yankee Stadium, like a 600-foot home run. Like, that guy just hit a ball a 1,000 feet. All right, let him come back. <laughs> like, you know, he's too old to play in the major league. He hit a ball a 1,000 feet. <laughs> All right, we'll take another look. Like, that's, that's what that audition was, you know? So if you are somebody listening who's just starting out, how would, do they get to the place where you're at right now, knowing the things that they're going through might be similar to what you're going through? Like your inside baseball advice to somebody to that would take a path to where you are that wouldn't have so many peaks and valleys if they knew how to do it and they could figure it out. And you could give them the guidance to do so. I think you go to you go to ACOA groups in Los Angeles, where there aren't there aren't many around the country. Adult children of alcoholics. Just start there. Just start at a twelve step group. Go to these groups, a Sex Anonymous group or an Overeaters and Alcoholics Anonymous. Go, but I would start at the ACOA group, where people have been badly abused and talk about it all the times, and say. I need help. Where do I go? I don't have a lot of money. Where do I go? They're even starting meetings out here for trauma for um, people um, with PTSD. That I mean, California is the recovery mecca. I'd say move here first if you could. Um, and the other thing is, I know I haven't been smart in a lot of ways. But when I was 27 and I came up with this idea, there was this book by a guy named Edwards Deming who assisted in building Nagasaki after World War II. And his idea, his theory was if you make small incremental changes over a period of time, they snowball into something giant. So by the time Barry Katz got to me, I'd been practicing voices by myself from the age of 27, trying to make one improvement a week. Um, and I didn't always. I probably made 25 improvements every year, but that's a lot of improvement, you know? Oh, I would just, let's sum it up this way, ask for help. That's what I did. I just asked people, help me. Where do I go? This is one of the most memorable interviews i've ever had in my life thank you so much daryl for doing this what an honor dude watch the movie when it comes out those girls make those gals women make fantastic movies i will a hundred percent you have my commitment that i will see that movie thank you so much thank you so much okay i'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message and one of these people will be a lucky winner and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Mike Frew, August 8th, 2019. Heading reads, great podcast with great guests. Five stars. 
comment reads, thank you, Barry, for making a great show with some solid insight with your guest and your experience into the entertainment industry. All right. Thank you so much, Mike Frew. You are a winner. And that wraps up our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatru, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code Barry and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. Patricia Heaton. (laughs) What I've found in talking to people is that the person who is meant to be in this business will be in it because there's nothing else they can do and they cannot stop themselves from doing it. And it doesn't matter what's in their way. They have to do it. And that's the way it was with me. And that's the way it is with many of the people that I've come across is there was no, and not for a minute, another, a, a, an instance where they thought, I'm going to go back to school and do something else. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out of money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.